Good morning, Mountain States. We are continuing in our series called Made for Mission this week, and I'm excited that week number four, we get to talk about who is our mission. We just talk about who it is that God has called us to reach, right? In week number one, we talk about how we were all made to join in God's mission. We're not meant to just sit in our seats, but we get up off our seats and onto our feet and join God in his mission, right? The second week, we talked about what is our message? What are we to communicate? Uh, we talked about how, how God's mission is our mission. What exactly is that mission? If we are to join God in his mission, and his mission is our mission, the exact same thing. We don't have two different missions. We are to join God in what he's already doing. Last week, what is his message? And his message was that as our lives were to go out and share how God has impacted us, as God's intersected with our lives, and the experience we had with that with other people around us. We have such a great opportunity. And today the question is, who's God sent me to? Who is my mission? Who is it that God has sent me to? Is it just some random person that I see on the streets? It's just some random person I see on the corner of I-25 and 120th is out there with a sign? Is it just some person I just happen to run into? Who is my mission? Who is it that God has brought into the intersections of my life? How many of y'all remember when you learned to drive? I know my girls don't. Uh, <laughs> Learning to drive, one of the most difficult things to figure out is you come up to a four-way stop, and if everybody gets there at the same time, who goes first, right? It's like, you want to gas break, gas break. Who goes first? These intersections in life where God has placed us to meet other people, where we are going to naturally be in our lives, these life's intersections together. We talked about five of them, wherever we work, shop, eat, play, and live, right? Those five intersections of our lives. And as we are going through our lives, as we are just walking through life, God is going to bring people into that spot so that we, our lives intersect with them naturally. We don't necessarily have to go out of our way to go to a foreign field to go meet Jose. You can do that, but God has planted us here as his church, as the body of Christ, right here in this area to intersect with Jose and intersect with John and intersect with Sally and Sue and everybody else around you. Our lives are going to naturally intersect with people around us. It is our job to find out who it is that God is bringing into our lives so that we might have a chance to minister to them and what do we share with them? Again, we share how God intersected with us first, right? And how God did a great work in our lives. That's what we're sharing. You don't have to be this great theological scholar. Last week we talked about the, the demon-possessed man who'd been a follower of Jesus for a whole five minutes. And God says, go and tell. But I don't know. Is it predestination? Is it pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? I don't know. Uh, do we baptize by immersion or by sprinkling? I, uh, is it the uh, substitutionary atonement of Christ? Or uh, uh, Jesus said, just go and tell what God's done for you. How difficult is that? You don't have to have a master's or a PhD in Bible knowledge. You don't have to know all the Greek and the Hebrew. 
to go and share with somebody. He said, you go and share what you know, what you've experienced. Today, as we get into that, as we talk about this, we're going to talk about the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Before we get there, leading up into that story, John chapter 4, again, it's one of my favorite story passages as well. Dave, I'm so glad that you're sharing your favorite passages in our, in our Bible reading time before I get up here. I love hearing what other people said. Man, this, this passage has such a great impact on me. This passage had an impact on me. This passage, this verse, this verse, this verse. Because, you know, God is working in each and every one of us differently. And what God has impacted you with, He's going to impact me with something a little bit different. But maybe what He's impacted you with, you're going to share that with somebody. Like maybe Dave shared this this morning and how three times Peter failed God, failed Jesus, denied Him, cussing out. I mean, literally just laying it all out there. And so there was no doubt He was not a follower of Jesus at the end, right? And so when Jesus meets Him, He says, your past is in the past. Let's move forward from here. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You move forward from this point on. Maybe that's an encouragement to somebody today to realize, man, that's, Dave struggled with that his whole life as well, and God's doing a mighty work in his life. God, one of my favorite passages is John chapter 4, where we're talking about the Samaritan woman, how God, Jesus went out of his way, much like he did last week with the demon-possessed man, went out of his way to go reach this one person. One person. You know, and I feel like God went out of his way to reach this one person too. Stepped out of, brought me out of my comfort zone so that I could reach, he could reach me. And throughout my whole life as I've been ministering overseas for 20 years, it's amazing to see the people that have come through and God is, I'll, th- I'll look back and go, man, I, we really failed those, those people. We failed those kids. We failed those adults. We failed that family. And yet, the seeds are planted. Later on, they come back and go, you know, we may have not been very nice to you when you were our youth pastor. We may not have been nice to you when you were trying to minister to us. We may not have been receptive, but those seeds that you planted, that God used to plant in us down the road bore fruit, and they came back to the faith later on. We don't know what God is going to do in and through us and who God is going to use in intersections with our lives to share. In John chapter 2, there's a story of how people came to, they began to see what all that Jesus was doing. And this, the Bible says in John chapter 2, 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Great! Many believed in his name. It says when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why do you think he did that? There was a commercial Back in the 80s. Some of y'all may remember this. How many remember Bo Jackson? Bo Jackson, he was a baseball player, football player. There was a commercial that came out with his, all of it. He was the star of it. You might remember what, two words. What, what, anybody remember what it was? Bo knows. Bo knows this. Bo knows baseball. Bo knows football. Bo knows gardening. Bo knows culinary. Bo knows how to sh- cook. He knows how to chef. Uh, Bo knows how to cook. <laughs> Bo knows how to color. Bo knows how to do this. Bo knows how to do that. He knows how to do all these things. But more than just Bo, Jesus knows. Jesus knows our hearts. And Jesus knows the hearts of the people here. So when these people said they, they believed in his name, but he did not reveal himself to them, he did not entrust them because what? He knew their hearts. Jesus knows their hearts. He knew, what their, he knew that they were only a six 
on the, on the scale of religiosity, that they were just moderately religious, that they just wanted to follow the Messiah. They didn't really truly believe in him. They didn't truly trust him. They didn't truly love God. They just wanted to get on the bandwagon. So he didn't truly reveal himself to them. And then that leads us right into John chapter 3 with the whole story of Nicodemus. Here's this super religious guy. You'd say, yeah, he's a number, he's a nine or a ten on the religious scale, right? He's coming to Jesus at night. He's a little scared of his peers, but he comes to Jesus at night and he says, what must I do? We know that you're from, sent from God. What must I do? And Jesus says in John 3, 1, says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and the man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And he goes on to share what this man needs to do to receive him. He knows Nicodemus' heart. He knows what his true desire is to follow Jesus and follow the Messiah. And later on, Nicodemus becomes one of his followers. Silently and quietly at first and privately at first, but eventually becomes, he comes out, much like Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea says, here, you can have my tomb. This tomb that I that was preparing for me, for when I died, I want to give to you, to the Messiah, to the Christ. And Nicodemus and he were in charge of bringing Jesus to the tomb later on. And he was revealed, and they let it be known that they were a follower of Christ. He was probably 9 or 10. And in John chapter 4, we find the one on the religious scale. This lady in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, had no compunction, no trying to hide who she was. She was no trying to say, yeah, I, I go, to the, go to the temple, I go to and I offer these sacrifices. And, yeah, that's not who I am. She was not trying to hide that she was a one. And yet Jesus went out of his way as he's traveling to go meet this one person. John chapter 4, verse 1 and following. Read along with me, if you would. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And look at verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Joseph's well was there. So that Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. I love that verse 4. As it's being written here by John, and Jesus just had to travel through Samaria. Why was that such a big deal? Remember last week we talked about the demon-possessed man? How he lived in the area of the Decapolis? How those Decapolis people, Decapolosians, the Decapolis people, those people of that area, they were despised by the Jews because they, their ancestors, the people who lived before them, had given in and, and, and adapted, adopted some of the uh, ways of the Canaanites, how they were the original Canaanites, and they had not been kicked out. And so the Jews didn't go there unless they had to. The Samaritans were much the same way. The Samaritans, no, Jews just didn't go through Samaria unless they absolutely had to. In fact, usually 
they went, there should be a map, a picture of a map up here of Samaria. If you look up here, you see they're traveling from the north to the south. If you're going to travel from way up north, up there in Galilee, past the Sea of Galilee, all the way down to what's Jerusalem and Bethany and Bethlehem down here, most people came down and they took the green route around Samaria, which is the big purple glob. That took them six extra days to go that route because they did not want to go through Samaria. Six days out of their way, six days of extra food and water, six days of extra finding, having to find extra camping spots, six days of dragging the kids through the desert. We thought our road trips were bad, right? Six days of having to feed the camels, six days just to bypass Samaria. And yet Jesus made it his pattern to go through Samaria, through Samaria, through Samaria. As he is teaching his disciples, these people matter to God. Is there anybody in your life that you go out of your way to avoid? Maybe not six days out of your way. That's some pretty good hate, right? Are there some people in our lives that we see them coming and we run the other way? I've shared about Colin before. My friend Colin, my Chinese friend Colin in China, and how he used to come into our restaurant and I would run the other way because I did not want to be. I would run six days out of my way to get away from Colin and he would come and find me. He had like this antenna. He could find me no matter where I was in town. Oh, David, how you doing? I'm not here. Now I'm trying to avoid him. I don't want to. He just was annoying. And I freely admit that. He was annoying and aggravating. But God put him in my life to teach me some lessons and hopefully it impact him as well. I stopped going, driving six miles, six days out of my way. It took me a couple of years. It, it did. I, we were there for nine years, almost ten years in China, and I avoided him for the first half. I didn't want to be around him. He drove me nuts, bonkers, loony. And some of y'all are saying, you're still that way. But eventually... I began to see him with the eyes of God. See, Jesus, as he goes into Samaria, near this town of Sychar here, willing to go and expose himself and his disciples to these people, to the Samaritans, not afraid of them, what they're going to do for him, and not afraid of them corrupting him, he goes and sits down at their well all by himself and just waits. He goes to sit down at the well and waits all by himself at the sixth hour. And that's an important fact, too, about the sixth hour. We'll get to that in a minute. In verse 7, it says, And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, great, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob, and who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his livestock? And Jesus said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. As Jesus sat there at the sixth hour, which was noon, the hottest part of the day, when all of the other women from town had already come and gone, he's there waiting because he knows someone's coming. He knows this woman is coming. So he's waiting by himself. The disciples didn't even wait with him. He said they went off into town to get food. And he sits there, and this woman comes up, and I love this picture, as she's kind of timidly giving him water, try, try giving him water. She's looking at her face, is like, why are you asking me for water? What is it about me that you want? Why are you trying to offer why, why do you want water from me? I'm, I'm a Samaritan. Why are you even talking to me? You should be in town with other people. You should be avoiding this area. You, here you are waiting for me. How did this woman view herself? This woman, we know from the story that she's been married five times that the man she was living with now was not her husband. she kind of given up hope from finding a good marriage and said, well, just throw it all by the wayside. I'm just going to go live the way I want. I'm just going to go shack up with somebody because somebody's going to take care of me, right? She viewed herself as worthless. She viewed herself as of no value viewed herself that she couldn't do anything right. She'd failed five times at marriage. She couldn't even keep a man in her mind. Shame over her past and her present. The local community, how they view her, they, 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 they did, didn't want to be around her either. That's why she came at the sixth hour. Can you imagine the conversations and the talk when they all go to the well together early in the morning before it gets hot? There she is. She's the one who's married to John, Jacob, Judah, Abraham. She's the one who's living with that guy over there. And the conversation's behind her back and maybe even not even behind her back anymore. Just kind of, the looks that people would have given her. No wonder she stopped coming early in the morning and came at the hottest part of the day. She didn't want to hear that stuff. How do the disciples? The disciples saw her as, oh wait, they weren't even there. They couldn't stick around. They didn't want to stick around long enough to meet her. And when when they come back, they don't even appear to talk to her. She's that Samaritan. What's Jesus doing? What's he he doing talking to her? Man. And yet Jesus sat there on the edge of the well. He saw her, because Jesus knows, right? He saw her worth. He saw her value. Her persistence in asking the questions. 
of persistence in trying to find out who he really was, he said, you are worthy of my time. And let me give you some living water. So how do we see people? When God brings people into our lives, when we intersect with those around us, how do we view them? Do we view them as a ministry that God's brought across our path? I'm going to lower myself. I'm just going to, let me pray for you, bro. Let me pray for you. Let me help you out because you're a ministry God's got to brought to me. Or do you view them as, take pity on them? Do you view opportunities to share as, as just ways to make yourself feel better? Oh, I'm doing the Lord's work. Or do you view them as God views them and say, you know what, you are valuable to God. And if you're valuable to God, you're valuable to me. I'm willing to get to know you. I'm willing to get to spend time with you, to find out what makes you tick. Let's, if God's brought you into my path for a reason. Yes, it may be to minister to you, but it's not so that I can lift myself up and stand up on my pedestal and say, let me share with you the truth from God's Word. Because it, if it doesn't come from here, it doesn't come from God prompting you, then something's wrong. You ought to view people as, and see them with the eyes that God sees them. Love on them with the heart of God. In spite of their socioeconomic status, in spite of their language ability, in spite of their age, Young or old, God has brought people into our lives so that we might be the hands and feet of God to them. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not be thirsty. So she's thinking, I don't want to come back to this well. I don't want to have to come back here and make the trip from town every single day. Give me this living water. I don't want to be thirsty any longer. I don't want to have to come back here and face the, these other ladies who are here. That's why I come at noon. Jesus said, oh, go and call your husband. And you guys come here. The woman said, I have no husband. <laughs> Jesus said, you're right. And saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is very true. See, this woman was caught up in a lifestyle of trying to fulfill her desire for relationships through multiple husbands, multiple relationships, over and over again, trying to fill that void that anything other than a relationship with God will fill. We try to fill our voids with so many things. We try to fill our voids with relationships. We try to fill our voids with education. We try to fill our voids with entertainment. We try to fill our voids with so many things, and yet God is right there saying, fill your void with me. Only when we truly find ourselves and allow ourselves to be filled by God can we truly find that contentment. That's why Paul can say later on in his epistles, I can be content in any situation. I can be content in any situation, in any place, no matter what, my, what, what may be going on in my life, I mean, whether it be shipwrecks or hunger or thirst or in a good life. I can be content because that void has been filled by God, not by his circumstances not by what's going on around us. And only when we allow our void to be filled with God will we find that true contentment. See, this lady had been issued five divorce slips. The women were not allowed to divorce the men back then. But she had been rejected five 
times by five husbands who promised, I will keep you and I will protect you and I will comfort you and I will love you until I no longer need you. Five times she'd been rejected. What does that do to her? The shame, the social outcast, displaced in society, kicked to the curb, feeling pain and bitterness. And here she meets the Savior at the well, and he says, you're worth something great. You are a valuable worth to God. I want to make a difference in your life. I'm bringing living water. It's the water I have. If you drink of it, you won't be thirsty again. Thirsty for what? To fill that void. Jesus saw the worth, and that becomes obvious in just a minute. Look down at verse 39. As we, as we skip ahead later in the, in, the, in the passage there, it says, Many Samaritans from town believed in him because of that woman's testimony. How'd they know? She said, He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to see him, they asked him to stay with them. He stayed with them there two days. And many more came to believe because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard him ourselves. We know this is indeed the Savior of the world. And after the two days, he departed for Galilee. What happens when he meets this woman? What happens when his life intersects with this woman? What happens when he shares truth with this woman? An instantaneous revival breaks out in the town. She goes back to the town, likely where the disciples were just getting food earlier. She goes back and she gathers all those around. Come and hear the man who told me everything I've ever done. Now, Jesus didn't appear to tell her everything she'd ever done. But in her mind, whoa, he knew the big things, right? Come and hear this man. He's a prophet. He's amazing. He's told me some awesome things about myself. You need to come hear him. I think he might be the Christ. The townspeople come. And for two days... Jesus and the disciples, I'm sure they were real happy about this, sticking out, sticking around in Samaria, hanging out there in this despised land with these despised people. And your revival breaks out. For two days, he's there teaching them and healing them and teaching them and healing them and sharing with them how much he loves them. As his life intersected with theirs two days. What would happen if we allowed the intersections of our life to become real? To not be going so fast in our lives that we blow right through the intersection. There's a sign there that says, stop, yield, wait, something better ahead. And yet, pyong, you blow right through the intersection because you don't want to be bothered We don't want to be bothered by what and who might be waiting there at one of the other intersections. This impromptu spiritual revival takes place. She goes back into town, begins bringing others to hear Jesus. Think about the despised one goes back into town. The one who'd been mocked goes back into town. The one who didn't want to, nobody wanted to be around. She didn't want to be around them. They didn't want to necessarily be around her. That's why she went at noon and then she goes back into town and puts aside all of that and says, you come and hear about the, from this man. The disciples went into that village to buy food. 
we don't hear about them inviting anybody to come hear Jesus. Ouch. They were the ones who'd been traveling along with Jesus. They were his disciples. They were the ones following the rabbi, learning from the rabbi, sitting at his feet. And yet, they go into town to buy food and don't even invite people to come back and hear from their master. It takes this woman to do that. See, we don't know what's going on inside people, what their motivations are, or what greatness might exist there. It's a story about a young man going through boot camp at Paris Island. Anybody knows, if you know anybody who's been in the Marines, Paris Island is not a fun place to go to boot camp. I don't know what it's like in San Diego for those on the West Coast, but I know heard stories from my father-in-law who went through boot camp there. I used to live in South Carolina. I know what sand fleas are. They are not fun. Going through band camp in the middle of the summer and you're standing there in the middle and you can't move because you've been called to attention by the drum major and the fleas and the, and, the, and the gnats are coming up and they're just landing on you. And then they decide to have a feast and they start a little biting, 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 biting. Sand fleas are worse than those gnats. You go out to the beach and... It can be bad. If it's sand flea season, you put your blanket down there and you quickly take your blanket up because they start coming up right on top of the blanket and they're just all over you and they bite and they bite and they bite. It is not fun. But that's free. That's for another story another time. This young man was at Paris Island going through boot camp and he was a misfit, constantly having problems, constantly causing his squad problems. They had to run extra laps, they had to run extra miles, they had to do extra push-ups, all because this guy was such a goof-off, because he was such a problem. He couldn't do anything right. His squad came together and said, we got to fix this. So they said, we know what we'll do. We'll take a diffused hand grenade. We'll throw it into the barracks. We'll yell, live hand grenade and scare him out of his wits, hopefully scare him into, into his wits so that he can become a good soldier. So middle of night, they do that. They wake up. Somebody throws a hand grenade in the room. Psst. Live hand grenade! Everybody run! And everybody in the barracks runs. Except this one kid who jumps up. He jumps on top of the hand grenade and says, you guys run! I'll protect you. He was the one person willing to sacrifice himself for his squad. You never know what greatness exists inside of a person until you get to know them, until you see them through the eyes of Jesus. Jesus looked at this woman. He didn't just see a five-time divorcee. He didn't see a fornicator. He didn't see somebody living in sin. He saw a heart that could be changed. He saw a person who could influence her community. He saw a person who could go out and look beyond herself to bring people to him who needed to hear. See, Jesus was also that stone that the builders rejected was Jesus as well. The one that the world despised is the one that God used to redeem us back to himself. 
the people at that time, eventually, as you read past, even where David was reading this morning, the one that God sent to redeem mankind, the people rejected. The people rejected this woman as well. But God saw her of great worth. So then the question is, who is our mission? Who is our mission? We saw who Jesus' mission was. His mission was us. His mission was a lady at the well. His mission was all these other people. You know, eventually, essentially, our mission is those that God brings into intersection with us, right? It may not be comfortable, but God is going to bring people across our lives that he wants us to minister to. And it doesn't mean you have to be the greatest evangelist in the world. We have, a, we have a friend of ours, his name is Rick Kelly. He's a missionary. He was in Korea for a while. Now he's in Guam. We joked that he could walk down the street and spit and people would fall down on their knees and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. He was just an evangelist. He, he had that gift. He would say, God loves you, no good, filthy sinner. Okay, I, can't for, I need Jesus. I can cry my lungs out. I can scream. I can whatever. I, and people go, okay, that's nice. Those are nice words. George Demakos, the missionary we had here last year. You've you been reading his prayer letters when they come in. He's like, oh, this many people got saved, this many people got saved, we baptized this many people, we baptized this many people. I'm going, wow. Thank you, God, for people like that who have this gift of evangelism that he's just using. I wish I had that gift. I don't. Most of us do not. Most of us are normal people who are like, I just want to live my life and I need to share it with those people who God brings intersection with me so that I can be used. I mean, this is our church. Our church people. And the five pillars where you workshop, eat, play, and live. Where is it that God is bringing people into the intersection with you and me? so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus to those who have never heard the truth. We went to North Korea. I couldn't stand there. I've shared this before. We couldn't open up the Word of God and share with my escorts and the government agents. We couldn't do that. That was against the rules, against the law. We'd have been kicked out and never invited back. But you know what they saw? They saw Regina and I together when she had the opportunity a couple times to go in with me. They saw our relationship They heard the words that we spoke to one another. They heard the words of our team as we prayed together in the mornings, as we had devotions together in the mornings. They saw how we dealt with frustrations, whether whether the frustrations that they brought on on purpose or ones that just happened. They saw how we dealt with all these things. They saw the joy in our hearts when the project was completed. They saw how we loved on their people in spite of our governmental differences. And how we set those things aside and we said we love you as Christ loves you. So as I'm sitting at breakfast one day and a guy, my escort says, from the security bureau, from the secret police, he says, would you pray for my daughter? Why are you, he's not supposed to ask me that. He's not supposed to ask me that. That's against, he could get in trouble for asking me that. And he says, would you pray for my daughter? She's really sick. And have an opportunity right there to pray for his daughter over our breakfast. 
and begin developing a relationship with him over the next couple of years. And I still pray for Mr. Che. That God would, hopefully one day he's going to hear the rest of the truth. He's going to, and more people are going to be able to plant seeds in his heart. Because he knows who healed his daughter. He knows when I came back two weeks later. And he said, my daughter's well. She's great. She got all of a sudden just like that. He says, it was amazing. The medicine worked. Really? You've been trying medicine for six months and it hadn't worked. And all of a sudden, after we prayed for it, it began working. Amazing. I said, you know how the, why that worked, don't you? I said, yeah. What was the one thing that was different? We prayed for your daughter. We asked that God's hand would come down and touch your daughter's life to help her get healed so that you might find see Jesus at work. It's all about those intersections and are we willing to take those opportunities? I didn't go through the Romans road with him and share with him how he was a no-good, filthy sinner and needed, to, needed the heart and love of Jesus in his life to, to, to save him. I simply let our life speak in such a way that they may see the good works and glorify God. The lesson from the Samaritan woman is that God has strategically placed you where you are to reach one or some. He has intentionally and strategically placed you in your neighborhood. He has intentionally and strategically placed this church in this neighborhood. He's intentionally and strategically placed you at your workplace. He's intentionally and strategically placed you in your family to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to love on those around you. Are we willing to take that opportunity? This woman got to go back to the town where she was from, out of her comfort zone, but felt compelled to share with others that she did life with. The Greek word oikos, it's in your notes there, means household. House or family. The average household at that time was made up of 8 to 15 people. Now think about this in Luke 8. The demon-possessed man was told to return to his household and tell of the great things that God had done to him. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus was told salvation had come to him and his whole household. Luke and John 4, that later on after this story we'd read today, the centurion's whole household was saved through the following and healing of his son. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius was a righteous man who feared God with all his household, they got saved. Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer and his entire household got baptized in the middle of the night after hearing the story of Jesus. Who can God touch? What household does God want you to impact by intersection with one person? We're all looking for the great revival. We're all looking for the great numbers that God's going to bring in. But it starts with one-on-one, one-on-one you and one person, you and one person, as you intersect your life with one other person, God's going to do a great thing. Are we willing to take those opportunities to think intentionally and strategically where we work, shop, eat, play, and live? Are we willing to keep our eyes open? I implore you to. Keep your eyes open, keep your antennas up, because you never know who God is going to bring across your path that you might just speak one word of encouragement, one word of truth, or they may speak one word of encouragement or truth to you. 
This past week, y'all know I work for Nabisco early in the morning, and I was talking to the sales guy that I, I work with, and he mentioned that he went into this other store, and the receiver at that store who, who goes to Flatirons got upset, and this is not a slam on Flatirons, this guy's a believer, and he, he was there and he got frustrated at something that was going on there and just let the F-bomb fly. Just let it go. And this sales rep that I work with, he and I were talking, having coffee Thursday. He said, you'll never believe what this guy said. And he's a Christian. He goes to church. He, he, he's not a pastor, but he goes to church. He's not like you, but he, 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 he says he's a Christian. And yet he said this. See, the world is watching, waiting, as their lives intersect together. And I had the opportunity on Friday, I went in and saw this guy, actually, and I said, you know, this is what Paul said. He was like, oh, he heard that. I said, he heard that. We never know who is watching us. Our antennas have to be up and aware because people are around us all the time. I want you to do this for me as we close this morning. You don't have to do it necessarily right now, but I'd like you to do it today. This is your homework. The five different areas of intersection in our lives are what? Work, shop, eat, live, play, workshop, eat, play, live, right? On a piece of paper, when you get home, I want you to write down two to five names for each of those areas. Two to five names in each of those areas. So these are people that you intersect with. Some of you may be stay-at-home moms, and maybe you're thinking, I don't intersect with anybody. You do. Maybe you do it online. Maybe it's in person. You may be thinking, I'm stuck in a cubicle all day long. I take my lunch, and I don't even leave for lunch you still interact and intersect with people. Write down two to five people in each of those categories. And you begin praying that God will give you opportunities to share, invest, and impart knowledge and, and His truth into those lives. And number two, I'd like you to pray this prayer, this challenge prayer for the next 21 days. It says, Lord, I don't ask you for much today, but would you give me a heart for the lost? As you wake up in the morning, God, I'm not asking you for much today, but would you give me a heart for the lost? Tomorrow morning when you wake up, God, I'm not asking you for much today, but would you give me a heart for the people around me? Tuesday morning, God, I'm not asking you for much today, but would you give me a heart for my neighbors? Wednesday, God, I'm not asking you for much today, but would you give me a heart for my unsafe family members? Thursday, God, I'm not asking you for much today. Would you give me a heart for my unsaved coworkers? Friday, God, I'm not asking you for much today. Would you give me a heart for those people at the gym that I see every week when I work out? See, it starts as we begin to think about those people, as we begin to pray for those people. God will give us opportunities to meet them and to impart truth and knowledge and wisdom into their lives and to inject him into a conversation. He will give us those opportunities if 
we get our antennas up and our eyes open to see. I'll close with this. I know it's the 14th time I've said that, this message. But I'm moving my stuff off to the side now so you know it's true. I talked to my parents, an example of looking for opportunities. I talked to my parents this week, and I was so proud of them. They were driving a young couple in their church in Florida to the doctor's office to give a prenatal checkup. They'd never met this young girl and her boyfriend before. And as they, the normal person who drives them to their prenatal checkup just couldn't be with them that day for whatever reason. So they called my mom and dad and said, would you please take this young lady to her prenatal checkup? My mom and dad didn't have anything going on, so they said, sure, we'd be glad to. And they put this lady in the car with her and her boyfriend in the car with them, drove them to the checkup, and they had three or four hours with them all together, just being able to love on them and share with them. They didn't tell them what a no-good, filthy sinner they were. They didn't tell them how any deep theological questions, but they just loved on this couple. And they loved on this couple, bought them lunch, bought them a meal, bought them coffee, and just loved on them and loved on them and loved on them for three or four hours. Looking for opportunities to be the hands and feet. Looking for opportunities when our lives might intersect with others. Are we keeping our eyes open? I hope they are. hope you do. And as you go home today, two to five people, and pray this prayer every day for the next 21 days. Would you join me in that? But why don't we start right now? Join me in this prayer right now. Let's pray together. Lord, I don't ask much of you today, but would you give me a heart for the lost? Amen. Drew, as you come on, we're going to sing one final song this morning. And I pray as we sing this final song that you, your desire and your heart for the lost would grow over the next 21 days as you're looking for opportunities for our lives to intersect with others around us, that you would see that the message God has given to you is going to change hearts and minds and communities all around us as we sing together this morning. Let's stand and sing.